Unless one is writing history or biography of former days, the writer in the field of social sciences is almost certain to be concerned with current affairs. He may generalize or theorize in such a way as to include the past and future as well as the present. But he has to pretty much consider the implication of what he is writing to the here and now. He can't indulge in fiction and fancy as novelists and poets can, properly do, or imagine what may have motivated men and women in some setting of history in generations or millennia past. As all readers know, the law has had a fascination for fiction writers. But real trials have also presented the material of drama. So we find Hannah Arendt writing about the Eichmann trial, Jessica Midford about the trial of Dr. Spock and his associates, Rebecca West writing about treason, John Hersey in the Algerian motel incident about Detroit riots, Truman, Truman Capote in In Cold Blood about two psychopathic criminals. A fine book by two distinguished law professors was written about the trial of Jack Ruby, who killed Oswald in jail in Dallas. And William Kunstler wrote a provocative account about the Hall Mills trial of a generation ago. Now, as a lawyer and one who has held public office, my concern has been with various aspects of the political scene. So I've written such books as Swords and Symbols, The Technique of Sovereignty, Law and Psychology in Conflict, and Intention in Law and Society, which deal with problems of political power and the psychological and sociological validity of parts of our legal system. Law has always been an important part of the political process. As we read literature and history, we find attitudes of respect and contempt, awe and cynicism expressed. William Pitt proclaimed, where law ends, tyranny begins. Oliver Smith wrote, law grinds the poor, the rich men rule the law. Both are true. Contempt of court is today no longer merely a legal issue. It has become a social phenomenon. The proper subject for those who write on our culture, those who write about our politics, and those who write about the psychology of our society. When we speak of contempt of law today, we think at once of the trial in Chicago of the eight men accused of a conspiracy to create riot and disorders during the Democratic Convention of 1968. As a lawyer, I cannot but feel that they, are, that they did express contempt of court, as did their attorneys, by their disruptive procedure and refusal to express in an orderly way their objections to the rulings of the court. But in another sense, they expressed respect for law. They wanted an application of law that respected their constitutional right of free assembly and free speech. Only, to my mind, they went about it the wrong way. On the other hand, Judge Julius Hoffman didn't express respect for law. He indicated bias. He engaged in undignified controversy with lawyers and defendants, and his sentences on the count under which the defendants were found guilty and on the contempt of court charges brought by Judge Huffman himself were so punitive as to cause disrespect of the judicial process. So was the excessive bail that he set. This trial has been the subject of books and articles by some of the defendants and their attorneys. It will be the subject of more. Now, many splendid books have been written over the years about the Supreme Court of the United States and its judges. Judges of the Supreme Court, in addition to their opinions, have also themselves given us great writing. 
Among the finest stylists of our century, I believe, have been Justices Holmes and Cardozo. Justice Douglas and Brennan have written well on social and legal matters. The Supreme Court has been a symbol of law that is above political partisanship. That is why the, the Supreme Court and its members have for almost a century and three quarters had so much prestige. This has not always been true, of course. The court has at times ruled on political matters that have caused it to be condemned. It has frequently been behind the social and political thought of the times, but it has also led the country into new attitudes towards political and social problems. In more recent years, the court under Chief Justice Warren was condemned for upholding the rights of defendants to counsel at all stages of criminal proceedings and against the use of confessions obtained under any kind of duress. The court was accused of interfering with the police and coddling criminals. On other occasions, it filled vacuums and led the country when the administration and Congress failed or faltered, as when it declared in Brown against Kansas that segregated education was unequal education. I should point out that in reaching its opinion in this case, the court relied on studies made by Dr. Kenneth Clark, the distinguished psychologist, an important part, kind of social science writing today. Similarly, the court gave leadership when it laid down the rule of one man, one vote. The Warren Court was treated with some of the most outstanding expressions of contempt of court by Senator Eastland and other members of Congress. Those who have talked about law and order most loudly have treated the courts with the greatest contempt. To my mind, for example, it was an act of contempt of the Supreme Court for the President to propose such men as Judge Hainsworth and Judge Carswell for that bench. They were men with racial bias. In the one case, the nominee was a man who showed no discretion about judging cases in which he had a financial interest, and in the other, a man who had been overruled time and again as a judge and was acknowledged to be mediocre. We have an Attorney General who has shown so little respect for the law that he has urged preventive detention of accused persons, a procedure not acceptable under Anglo-Saxon law since the revolution against the Stuarts in England and the Revolutionary War in this country, a procedure that has been the hallmark of communists, fascists, and Nazis. He has indicated that he would not abide by the Supreme Court rulings with respect to electronic surveillance and wiretapping. And unfortunately, this contempt of law has been repeated and greeted with approval by members of Congress. Then we have the case of Governor Wallace, another advocate of law and order who aspires to the presidency and who as governor of Alabama resisted desegregation. You will all recall Governor Barnett of Mississippi who stood at the door of the University of Mississippi and defied the United States Marshals who insisted on enforcing a, a court order that James Meredith be admitted to the university. And now this year we have Governor Kirk of Florida who tried to overrule the federal court order requiring desegregation of schools in one of the Florida counties. He threatened to use force against the United States Marshals. Finally, he succumbed but not before he demonstrated to all students that if you don't like a law and you objected to a court order, you could defy them. These things, this kind of action, this kind of defiance of law 
by officials is a danger to free speech and to all writers. We have a right, if we are to have a stable society, to insist on respect for law. But how are the advocates of law and order to be taken seriously by intelligent young people and the residents of slums to whom law and order must mean law as people with power want it and order as they define it? What a terrible example of respect for law it is when a court, attorneys, a president, an attorney general, and governors defy the law. To the poor man, law means the police in the lower courts, not the legislators, and not the highest courts of the state or federal government. How are their rights and liberties protected by these instrumentalities of the law? Let me interrupt and say that I believe it is just such a, much a mistake to assume that all policemen have, uh, are brutes and that the lower courts are uninterested in doing justice is to say that all residents of the ghettos are rioters, looters, or condone rioting and looting, <clears throat> or that all students are revolutionaries and participate in or favor breaking windows, setting fires, or throwing bombs, or protesting students are, in the president's elegant phrase, bums. But I believe that the police tend to be more punitive than most people. I have shown this in a study which I did of police rookies. I have found writing about empirical, empirical studies made by myself and others to be a fascinating avenue of law reform. At this point, I might state that some of the most interesting, though abominable, writing today is by social scientists about their experimental research. This involves fact-gathering quite different from that done by authors in other fields, except, of course, in the natural sciences. The police come back to what I was saying, also have their political biases. They tend to support the ultra-conservative factions in politics. In order to be a good policeman, however, as to be a good judge, personal opinion must be restrained in the interest of professional performance. In a sense, this is no different than the position of a scientist who also has his prejudices but who must be aware of them and not permit them to color his scientific experimentation. There have been a number of findings that police treat white-collar people better than blue-collar people. They are less inclined to rough it up with the former. This is not ununderstandable if one recalls the professional people and white-collar workers are less inclined to use physical violence than people in the slums, whose culture includes much more violence and who don't have the verbal resources of better educated people. At the same time, there is much evidence in the recent articles of the New York Times that shows this, uh, that the police corruption exists, that everybody in slum areas and big cities knows that the police are aware of the people engaged in the numbers racket and who push drugs. Of course, this has an effect on respect of law. In recent years, there have been a number of books and articles of varying caliber by black writers who have told of life in the ghettos and told of law enforcement there. James Baldwin in particular should be mentioned here. In 1967, the New York Civil Liberties Union brought some actions against the police to prevent them from violating the Constitution by arresting people, distributing poli political leaflets on the sidewalk. This was a violation of free speech and, and the right of the press. An agreement was reached, and, uh, uh, the, and the actions by the Civil Liberties Union were withdrawn. Nevertheless, two years later, the police ignored the order. And this, of course, 
raises doubt as to their good faith. Judge George W. Crockett, Jr., the presiding justice of the Detroit uh, Recorder's Court in 1967, uh, two years after the Detroit riots, relates in the publication Judicature, another form of social science writing, one of the incidents of that time, two police officers had been shot. The police surrounded a church and a neighborhood in the neighborhood of the shooting and arrested 142 occupants, including women and children. In violation of the Constitution and of the Supreme Court rulings, they refused to permit the arrestees to telephone or otherwise make contact with attorneys, relatives, or friends. After a hearing, 130 of these persons were released on the uh, on the motion of the prosecutor. Such dragnet, arre uh, dragnet arrests have never bred respect for law. In the, Judge Crockett tells, too, of, the, of an incident in connection with the 1967 riots, where 7,200 persons were arrested. Most of them were discharged, but nevertheless, those who were held were held by the judge on the recommendation of the district attorney in $10,000 to $20,000 bail for men and women who had never had more than $500 in their lives. One may question whether the prosecutor and the judges who set this bail were performing their duty in a way to create respect for the law or were succumbing to hysterics. In New York City in 1968, <coughs> pardon me, there were over 520,000 untried criminal cases in the criminal courts. This backlog certainly did not encourage respect for law, and when one considers that one-third of these 520,000 undisposed cases were considered lost because the defendants were never found, one must conclude that neither those defendants nor the complainants could respect the law. Stephen Clark of the Vera Foundation of Justice, which has done so much to improve and civilize the administration of criminal justice in our city, attributes a good deal of the delay to the constant adjournment, with the result that each adjournment, uh, with each adjournment, the chance of, of necessary witnesses appearing diminishes. Studies such as those by the Vera Institute are examples of another form of valuable social science uh, writing. When you come to the magistrate's courts, they are so busy, so overcrowded, few people can feel that they have had a fair hearing. This is not to blame the magistrates. We put too great a burden upon them. But in a mill that grinds out cases every five minutes, as many magistrates' courts must, respect for law is not promoted. Of course, the most common acts of contempt of judicial process are the disregard of parking tickets and summonses for traffic violations. To be a scoff law when you get a parking ticket has become endemic. Scoff laws would have to respect the law if it were enforced against them. The police could not possibly do this, but we could do it by denying them renewals of their licenses. Another place where poor people see an example of disrespect of law by others is the frequent failure of landlords to obey rulings by the various city departments that inspect housing. One must wonder sometimes about the extent of collusion between city inspectors and landlords, and how much respect one can have, therefore, for the city's enforcement of the law. I remember when I was president of the New York Board of Education, 
finding an extreme fire hazard in the metal shop next to an old school building. I reported it to the proper authorities. In spite of my own position, the reaction was not to require the offending neighbor to reduce the hazard, but to slap violations on the school. I certainly could not object to correcting the violations by the Board of Education, but the danger to children from the neighborhood shop was far greater, and that remained. That was not abated. Parenthetically, it should be said <clears throat> that an important area of social science writing has been the official report. No one today should re re fail to read the reports of the Kerner and Eisenhower commissions, and particularly the study by Hugh Davis Graham and Ted Robert Gore, Violence in America. Another such official report was that by the State Insurance Department early this year entitled Automobile Insurance for Whose Benefit? This deals with, with trial delays in the civil courts. The department noted that there were 221,000 cases pending in the state civil courts and that half of these arose from automobile, automobile accidents. The delays in these cases are great. As of April 1st this year, the cases being tried for, reached, reached for trial on the personal injury jury calendar of the Supreme Court of New York County were cases in which issue had been joined in November 1966, that is, three and a half years ago, probably four years or more since the accident. Some jurisdictions, jurisdictions are even more behind. What a frightful penalty this is for people who have been injured. Of course, most of the cases are settled and never come to trial. But because of the delays and the need of people who have been injured to pay their doctors and their rent, unfair settlements are forced upon them. Few, if any, of these cases should be tried. I have shown this in my book, Law and Psychology in Conflict, published by Bob's Merrill in hardcover and anchor books in softcover, that the very evidence on which automobile accident cases are based is unreliable. Even where everyone is honest, psychologists have shown the vagaries of recall of an incident such as an automotive accident and the inaccuracy of perception of what occurred. An automobile accident involves only a few seconds. Even for the spectator, there is some stress in the situation, and the psychologists have found that stress increases in accuracy of perception. In fact, research has shown that it's hard to place responsibility directly, be, uh, directly because there are usually several causes of an accident. All this has been well documented in the writings of lawyers and psychologists. But there, are, uh, but the vast there is such vast pressure by lawyers, insurance companies, and politicians who value judgeships, uh, and their politically appointed secretaries, as rewards for faith for the faithful to protect their vested interests. So legislation to remedy this situation is still far away. We shall have to do a great deal more writing if we are to accomplish a ref this reform in the law. In the lower civil courts where again the poor have the most of their contacts, as in the magistrates' courts, the calendars are so vast that few people can feel that their causes have received adequate consideration. This violates the main purpose of the law, to give people a sense that if they have a legal cause, whether they win or not, they are given a fair hearing. Now, I don't mean to indicate <coughs> pardon me, that there is no justice in these courts. Of course there is. 
and there have been many instances of solicitude for tenants unable to raise their rent money. But rapid-fire adjudication can't breed respect. When courts are held in contempt and the law isn't respected, stability of society is threatened. We point to rebellious youth, Black Panthers, rioters, revolutionary extremists. These are dissatisfied people, and some of their dissatisfactions are understandable. But this doesn't make violence tolerable. If we wish to, to isolate and contain extremists, the first thing to do is to make the courts more respectable and to have responsible people from the President of the United States to trial attorneys, judges, and the police show less contempt of court themselves and more willingness to abide by the law. As I've said, such matters as contempt of court in the broadest sense and respect for law present the kinds of problems that we who write in the social sciences must confront. We all try to forget the unpleasant. It is the business of writers in the social sciences to prevent such happy, dangerous oblivion.